0: Okay, let's just bow our hearts one more time and just commit this uh, time of study to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful for your word. The Lord, you've not left us without a map, without directions to navigate through this life. But Father, you've given us your word and Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word, to rightly divide the word of truth. And as we study this great, wonderful gospel this morning, the gospel of Luke, Lord, just help us to see the things that you would have for us right now today, the things that we need to take on board, Lord, the challenges to the way we currently live, Lord, the encouragement to help us to walk and live a godly life. And Father, the comfort that comes from knowing Jesus our Saviour, Lord, just speak to us now through these pages, I pray. Lord, stir our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Luke, a long time, one of my favourite Gospels. There's something easy to read about Luke's account. Um, all of the Gospels are great in their own way, of course, but there's something just very um, familiar uh, almost about luke and the way that he writes we've looked in previous weeks about this incredible design we three see through the gospels and whereas matthew's presenting jesus as the king the messiah mark seemingly writing uh, to a, a more of a, a roman audience presenting jesus as a servant luke seemingly presenting this gospel more to the greeks um, and it's the pre- presentation of Jesus as the Son of Man, the perfect God-man. Perfect God and yet perfect man at the same time. And so we see this incredible um, unity through the Gospel accounts. It's not, in a sense, just four Gospels. We've got four presentations of Jesus Christ. Well, as we go through, we see that uh, Luke, according to history, or certainly according to a tradition, was born in Antioch. Um, there's a couple of different Antiochs, uh, but this is the one currently sat in uh, modern-day Syria. Um, he was a medical doctor by profession. Paul in Colossians 4.14 refers to him as the beloved physician, becomes a very close companion of Paul. Apparently he was a, a freed slave. Now, possibly he's writing this account for his former master. We'll look at the, the introduction in just a moment. Uh, some have also suggested that this account and also the book of Acts, which is like Luke Volume 2 in a sense, were actually to be Paul's trial documents for his visit to Rome. You remember that Paul appealed to Caesar Um, Now, any application to Caesar to hear your case would need to be accompanied with documents stating the situation. So, some scholars believe, and there's there's some good uh, evidence to suggest this may be the case, um, that Paul uh, used or Luke wrote his Gospels to accompany Paul on that uh, journey and to present to Caesar and so on. Certainly, it's interesting that Romans are always portrayed in a positive light, which is one of the uh, suggestions that that's the case. <clears throat> Luke, interestingly enough, penned more of the New Testament than any other writer, including Paul. Uh, Luke actually wrote uh, just over 50,000 words. If you add up all the words that Paul wrote, it's about 43,000. Um, if you believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, then it would actually take Paul's tally to slightly more than Luke's um, by just uh, or a couple of hundred or so. Um, but Um, As it stands, as we have the record, that which we know for sure, uh, at this time, Luke uh, is the the one who penned more of the New Testament, which is interesting for a number of reasons, and not least because of something that we read in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, what advantage then has the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? And Paul answers the question that he rhetorically asks, and says, much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So Paul is saying, to the Jews was given the task, the privilege of recording and revealing God's word to us, the oracles of God. Now, why am I highlighting this? Well, because there is a controversy. And that is simply, was Luke a Jew or a Gentile? The consensus among most scholars today, if you look at most commentaries, they will tell you that Luke was a Gentile. And they give some reasons for that. In Colossians 4.14, where Paul calls him there the beloved physician, there's various individuals mentioned. There's three individuals mentioned that we're told specifically are of the circumcision. Clearly they're Jews. But then there's another group that are mentioned, and some of those seem to be Gentiles. So most commentators from that verse alone conclude, well, therefore Luke must have been a Gentile. Also they say that as he was born in Antioch he would have been of Greek parents and so on, so again not Jewish. That's again tentative, there's no real evidence for that. Um, They also say that because his profession was that of a doctor, it was typically a Greek role. Therefore, another uh, reason to believe this. And his name, Luke, also typically would have been a Greek name, certainly not a Jewish name. Now that's what's put forward, and really that's about the best of the, uh, the argument presented as to why people believe that Luke was a Gentile. However, if you do a diligent study on that verse in uh, Colossians 4.14, it doesn't indicate his nationality at all. In fact, the, the three that it mentions are of, who are of the circumcision, it was just highlighting... Uh, into, to the Colossian believers, the individuals, the Jewish individuals who they didn't know. But Luke they would have known. So there's no need to mention Luke in that particular uh, section. And interestingly enough, when you look at the, the whole thing, that there's no suggestion that it's implying that Luke was or wasn't a Jew or a Gentile. As regards to the, uh, the Antioch and being Greek parents, it's just tradition. There's no biblical support. Now, we know that many of the Jews were dispersed. And ended up living amongst the Greeks. Where does Paul live? Paul of Tarsus. Okay? So it's not unfamiliar to have Jews living around the, the Mediterranean area. The whole idea that the profession was Greek really is nonsense. Jesus speaks of physicians in Israel. So that, that, that again, that falls down. And the suggestion that his name was Greek, well, Paul, his real name was Saul. And yet he changes his name and adopts a Greek name. Apollos is a very Greek name, and yet he we know is a Jew. Alexander, also a very Greek name, but he was a Jew. So really the whole argument about the name thing falls down. Um, interestingly enough, we find a number of these individuals seem to have two names, like Paul having Saul and Paul. They have their Jewish name. And then they'd have their Greek name. Luke may well be just in the same situation as that. And uh, another interesting fact is that Luke accompanies Paul to Jerusalem and seemingly enters the temple without any hindrance. Now, if he was a Gentile, that wouldn't have been possible. There'd have been a a furor. There is a bit of a a furor kicked up about another individual. We'll look at that as we go through the New Testament some other time. But none of the, the Jews have any problem with Luke seemingly understanding and knowing that he was a Jew himself. Just to read you a quote from uh, Floyd Nolan Jones. He says, It must be concluded that Luke was a Hebrew. The notion that he was a Gentile is based on little more than tradition. The biblical account strongly evinces his Jewishness. And we must always hold to the scriptures over tradition, where the two conflict. The infallible word of God is the source and fountain for all real wisdom and scholarship. He also says, "Were Luke indeed non-Jewish? The Lord not only failed to honour his testimony in Romans 3... He also entrusted more of the New Testament revelation into the hands of a Gentile than those of his chosen people. As we've seen from that verse in Romans, God clearly says that it was given to the Jews to give us the oracles of God. So on that basis alone, you would have to conclude that Luke is a, a Jew and not a Gentile. And certainly the other evidence would seem to, to point that way as well. So just share that with you because you're going to find most commentaries will tell you that Luke was actually a Gentile. And one of the reasons I'll suggest this again is because Luke presenting what seemingly is a... Um, uh, an account of Jesus' life, looking again at Jesus being the perfect man the son of man, and it almost seems to be presented to a Gentile audience, but of course it's not really a surprise because Luke would have grown up in that, that kind of Hellenistic culture a very, a very Greek culture but that doesn't mean he wasn't a Jew many Jews were growing up in that culture at that time, so I'll just share that with you just to, to help you if you kind of come across that in your study Well, in regard to the historicity of Luke's accounts, it has been so attacked by the critics over the years. Um, One of those critics was a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey. Now, he's actually considered one of the the world's greatest historians. He was a biblical sceptic around about the 18th century in England. And this was at the time that in Germany we had this wave of higher critics um, that were kind of trying to redefine everything. They were telling us that the Torah wasn't written by Moses. We had various authors and various other... Portions of scripture were written at a much later date, and all these ideas were being presented. Well, Ramsey accepted those ideas, and he believed that, that Luke's writings were a, a later document, and there was no real substance to them from a historical point of view. But as he started studying, he realized that Luke mentions a number of geographical locations. So he decided to start to look into it, and after a diligent archaeological investigation, William Ramsey did a complete U-turn. Not only did he start to trust Luke's writings, he actually became a Christian on the back of the writings of Luke and that which he found for himself firsthand, that just as the Bible has said, so it was when they went and looked in the various archaeological places they were to investigate. And again he became a Christian and also, therefore, an apologist. He said it's the rest of his life really to defending and, and proving that which the Bible says to be true. A couple of quotes from uh, William Ramsey. He says, Luke is an historian of the first rank. Not merely Irish statements of fact trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. That's quite some statement. You know, We were talking this morning a little bit already about the, the need for us to get out there. To talk to people about our faith. Now, it should come, not from a sense of duty, but as uh, just a, an absolute love and desire of God and his word and what he's done for us. And it should overflow. That's the, the root uh, of, of uh, effective evangelism. Something that God has done in our lives. But it's great to know that we are speaking from a position of security when it comes to the facts. When we look at one of other quotes, he says, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. I love that. Again, when we talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are presenting facts that have been verified, that have been established, and we can bank on. Josh McDowell, who many of you will be familiar, spent many, many years studying. He himself was a skeptic who came to become a Christian on the basis of the evidence he found. He said, Luke's reliability as a historian is unquestionable. Again, the foundation of... That we've built our lives upon is very secure indeed, and even just to an intellectual mind, uh, is is there's more than enough evidence. Interestingly, Luke will use more medical terms than Hippocrates, who was considered the father of medicine as Greek individual. Uh, Luke uses more medical terms than he does, and Luke shows himself as an historian in his method. He diligently searches for eyewitness accounts and testimonies of people who had actually been there, and verifies and checks everything that he records for us. Interestingly, a French uh, critic and sceptic uh, by the name of Renan um, actually made the comment that the book of Luke is the most beautiful book that exists. Now he's referring very much to the Greek uh, that it's written in. There's various forms of Greek, um, but the, uh, I suppose that for our understanding it would be like uh, the English of Shakespeare. Uh, it's kind of seen as being something really quite, quite special. Well, Luke's writings are of the same kind of ilk from a Greek perspective. Interestingly, Luke records a number of events that we don't find elsewhere. There's over 20 miracles recorded, but six of them are unique to Luke's gospel. There's 23 parables. Eighteen of those are unique. Um, and there's other things that we find. The nativity is really given to us in detail in Luke's account. Matthew focuses on the Magi, of course, because of the kingly aspect we've seen already. But Luke gives us things that none of the others do. Only Luke recounts the birth announcements of Gabriel to Zechariah and to Mary, for example. The Good Samaritan, something we're very familiar with, the, uh, the account that Jesus uh, gives. The rich man and Lazarus, we'll look at that briefly this morning. The prodigal son and Palm Sunday itself and the details surrounding that. And Luke gives us great clarity on that. Uh, the road to Emmaus and those two individuals after the resurrection, we'll conclude with that in just a while this morning. So there's a number of things, and that's just a just a, a snapshot, but a number of things that Luke gives us that we don't find elsewhere. Now give you a quick overview of the book uh, William MacDonald and the Believers Bible Commentary. He gives kind a, a, a useful breakdown. Really, the, the, the book opens with this introduction, Luke's reasons for writing, and then we get the introduction of the Son of Man and also John the Baptist, his forerunner, the one who had, come, who had come to announce him. From chapter 3, we get the preparation for ministry, and then halfway through chapter 4 onwards, really it's the power of the Son of Man that we see, then going on to the purpose of the Son of Man, the ministry of the Son of Man, and then the opposition that comes from the establishment, particularly the religi- religious leaders. Leaders to the Son of Man. From chapter 12 through 16, it's the journey down to Jerusalem. And then we see that the disciples are given instructions through this time. And then the Son of Man in Jerusalem, uh, the Son of Man's passion and death, and then finally the Son of Man's triumph and ascension. So that's one breakdown that will be there in the notes for those who want to go through. Shemizah gives a slightly easier, simpler breakdown. First three chapters, the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Uh, The announcements of the birth, uh, um, the Mary, uh, Mary... and uh, uh John the baptist mother elizabeth as well and those two births and then the galilean ministry from chapter 4 through 9 uh, we see the various teachings and miracles and that's when the 12 are sent out and then from chapter 10 through to 19 it's that journey down to jerusalem and then to round out the book of course we find that jesus uh, this one who's presented on a donkey as the king uh, very soon is then arrested put on trial crucified and then obviously the resurrection and ascension so to give you another kind of idea of the structure okay let's just jump in and have a look at some of the text itself this is the first verse of uh, the gospel of luke for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. So that's Luke's basis to start with. He wants to form a uh, a record here of things that have been set forth to check to make sure that these things are so, to put in order, and these things that are believed among them, they know them to be true. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers. We'll look at those two words in just a moment, of the word. And Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Now that's another interesting suggestion, because Luke's saying he has understanding from the very first. It almost suggests that Luke, again, as a Jew, would have been privy to all of these things, may well have even been a disciple that would have seen some of these things firsthand. Understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. The name simply means lover of God. But this seems to be an individual, possibly Luke's former master, or possibly some Roman official to whom Luke uh, is writing on behalf of Paul, as we mentioned. That you might know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So Luke is writing this account so that we are in no doubt that these things actually happened, they really took place as has been recorded and passed down. Now, those two words, eyewitnesses and ministers, well, it's referencing, of course, the sources that Luke has drawn this information from. The word eyewitnesses is um, autopti, is the, the first word, uh, which is where we get our word autopsy from. And really, it's one who has seen with their own eyes, in a sense, being able to, to dissect and actually see something for yourself. The other word there, the ministers, um, uh, uh, retes, uh, uh, this word, uh, Greek word, which in the Greek just means an under oarsman. So if you think of somebody rowing a boat, you know, it's somebody who has part in that. It's used in a medical sense as an intern or a student. Okay, That's how the, this is, is uh, suggested. So what we're seeing here, the people that Luke has drawn this from are people who have seen with their own eyes they were students that sat at the feet of Christ. They heard these things firsthand, And these are the people that Luke says he went to to record this information for us. Mary, of course, would have been one of the key sources and many think that The Gospel of Luke is very much Mary's account in many respects. The Apostles, of course, Matthew and Mark, the Gospels we've already looked at, would have already been written by this time. Uh, Acts 21 tells us that Luke met Philip personally, so he'd have been able to draw from his experience. In Luke 8, verse 3, we read that Luke met Joanna, who was the wife of a man called Cusa, who was the steward of Herod's house. Now again, he would have had access to information that maybe some of the others wouldn't. So Luke then gets privy to that information as well. He was an eyewitness of many of the things that were recorded afterward. Luke also would have had access to the Apostle John. So this is the the basis. And of course, Luke travels with Paul for a number of these, these journeys, missionary journeys. And Paul himself would have been an eyewitness, of course, of some of these events. Paul may well have been at the trial of Jesus. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin, so may well have been there on that evening when Jesus was being tried. Certainly it's not long afterwards that Paul, as just a young man, is setting about trying to destroy this fledgling church. So this is the the sources that Luke draws from to give us this very uh, accurate historical record. Okay, let's look at some of the the key things then uh, as we go through. I'm just going to do it slightly differently this morning. I just want to just pull out some of the the highlights from the, the Gospel of Luke. The first thing is the nativity. Now, we're familiar with the nativity, but as I've uh, presented before, and some of you may have uh, sat through a session we've done on this, looking at the other Christmas story. You know, everybody's familiar with the Christmas story. We get to Christmas time and all the shops are playing all the Christmas carols and so on. But this is the other one. This is the one that is not told. Let's just look at the text. So we start in Luke chapter 1, picking up verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favoured. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled, at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favour with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb just as a, a little aside here, that's not where conception usually takes place. Conception usually takes place in the fallopian tube, not in the womb. Now I think that's not a mistake. I don't think that's just a, a, a generic term that's used. I think there's something that's uh, a very interesting that can be maybe for a later time of study. Because the conception for, for Mary was something very different from the conception of a normal child. Because Jesus, of course, was of the Holy Spirit of God of God himself so again I shall conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus Yeshua and he shall be great he shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord your God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom of his kingdom there shall be no end now this is the bit that's so politically incorrect this is the bit that most churches in this country will deny that this announcement that's been given to Mary by an angel that God has sent, this angel is saying that Jesus will sit on the throne of David. That's a political throne. That's a national throne, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Again, the throne of David is a nationalistic Jewish throne. Jesus never sat on that throne in his ministry when he came the first time. So it demands the re-establishment of the royal throne of David. It means a Jewish king, a Jewish temple on the temple mount. All of these things have to be in place for this to happen. Now that has profound implications to what is going on in the world and why things are going on in the world as they are today. Interestingly, the verse is often quoted at Christmas time from Micah chapter five verse two, but thou Bethlehem Ephratha, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall uh, he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Many in the church today would love you to scrub that verse from the Bible because they don't want us to think that Jesus is going to be the ruler in Israel or they'll try and reinterpret this and say oh but that now means the church no it doesn't because it's very clear that the one who's going to come who'd be born in Bethlehem will be ruler in Israel there's no other way you can interpret or understand that let's carry on with the text Mary said my soul does magnify the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my saviour interesting that Mary needed a saviour that means that Mary was a sinner she needed a saviour for he has regarded the lower state of his handmaid. for behold from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed for he that is mighty has done to me great things in his holy name uh, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation he has showed strength with his arm he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts he has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty and he has or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And now again, just look at this. So this is clearly in reference to the nation of Israel. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. It's talking of biological seed. Of course there is the reference that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's true. But this is talking about the promise to Israel. Now, Jumping forward, picking up verse fifty seven we read now elizabeth 's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. verse sixty we told his mother answered and said, he shall be called to John. now at this point, Zacharias, whose lips have been sealed for this uh, time of this, this pregnancy, uh, suddenly his uh, lips are opened supernaturally by God, and his father Zacharias, note this was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, so that which we are about to look at is given to us by God the Holy Spirit, spoken by Zacharias. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And notice again, that's for us. This is clearly Jewish in its intent and origin. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. It's incredible. that Zacharias is saying that Israel will be saved from all those that hate them. Well, you could draw up a long list of that in the world today. And then we carry on. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers. To remember his holy covenant. Again, the covenant that God had established with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Again, that he swore to Abraham in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life and thou child speaking of john the baptist shall be called the prophet of the highest thou shalt go before the face of the lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins it's an incredible record that we have there that luke gives us clearly the one who is coming the one who we celebrate at christmas time is the king of the jews waiting to receive his throne Jumping forward, in Luke chapter 4, there's a 2,000-year-old comma, or a comma that's lasted 2,000 years, or in fact you could even argue 2,700 years. Jesus enters into Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue. We read, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. At this point, all the eyes are starting to look at Jesus. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And at that point, Jesus closes the book. And he closed the book, he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That must have been amazing as Jesus is declaring that he is the one that Isaiah has spoken of. Interestingly, if you look at this prophecy from Isaiah, we find that there is a comma where Jesus, of what we have in the, in the New Testament, in Luke's account, a full stop. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn, and it goes on. Jesus stopped before proclaiming that last pair. Why? Because there's been at least 2,000 years... From Jesus coming and doing all the first thing, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening the prison to them that abound, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. And Jesus went to the cross to make all of that possible. And then 2,000 years have passed. And now we're on the verge of seeing the rest of this prophecy fulfilled. And the day of vengeance of our God. That day is coming. That day is coming very soon as we look at world events and things going on around us. An incredible prophecy that really launches Jesus very much into ministry. Luke 6, a real challenge for us, picking up verse 46. Jesus said, And why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Wow. That kind of hits home, doesn't it? You know, do we not call him our Lord? And do we do the things that he says? Are we obedient to God? Are we obedient to Jesus in the things that he's called us to in our life, our work, our walk, our ministry? Jesus says, why would you call me Lord if, you, if you're not willing to obey me? He says, whosoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundations on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. That's what our life is like if we listen to Jesus and we obey and we live that out in our lives. But he that hears and does not is like a man without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. That's the contrast. That's the way our lives are if we don't, listen to the things that Jesus has said and it's very easy to try and apply this to Christians and non-Christians but you know this is just applicable to each of us are we willing to obey the things that God has said you know to put time aside to pray are we really obedient in the, the ministry that he's called us to or do we make excuses of why we can't do certain things should be a real challenge to us let's move on up at this year's pastor's conference, there was a pastor, a fairly young pastor who'd come over from America. And he was great, he was really very dynamic in the way he presented and spoke to us. But he was just talking about the fact that we've been given so much. And he said he was in a situation, he went to uh, a place where they were staying and uh, he went to check into the hotel. And the room that he was going to book into, they told him, I'm, I'm sorry, we haven't got, that room's not available, we don't have a room for you. And this was late at night, he just arrived, and he was very frustrated. He was trying to remember that he was you know, a Christian and so on. And he said, look, well, you've got to find me something, you know, just a broom cupboard, anything, I've got to have somewhere to sleep. Well, they then found him the penthouse. They said, well, that's available, would it be okay? And he went, well, yeah, I guess. And he said, this room had its own doorbell. He said he walked in and there was a big table there that would seat 12 people. He said the bath was big enough to get in there with a great white shark as well. He said not that he would want to do that, but he said it was, it was huge. He said it was just him. He said it was wonderful. And he said it just dawned on him that that wasn't his room. He'd been given something that he didn't deserve. He said the the following day, one of his uh, traveling companions had arrived for the work, the ministry they were involved in, and he said, what was your room like? He said, oh, it was pretty good, actually. <laughs> he said, but the following night, he said, they put him in a room, he said, we could touch all four all four walls, you know, standing in one place. Uh, he said, which is very different. But he said, it just got him thinking about the way we've been given something that others have labored for, that we didn't earn, we didn't deserve. In Luke ten twenty two, we read, All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knows who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son. And he to whom the Son will reveal him. Interestingly, there, you know, if we want to know God, we have to get to know Jesus. There is no other option. There is no other way. And he turned him, to, turned him unto his disciples and said, Privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear, and have not heard them. You know, this is the challenge, because Israel, were told, was to inherit that which others had labored for. Let's just read in Joshua 24, it says, And I have given unto you a land for which you did not labor, and the cities which you built not, and you dwell in them, of the vineyards, the olive yards which you planted not do you eat. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, speaking of the Jordan, and in Egypt, and serve you the Lord. You know, we've got prophets and servants of God throughout the Old Testament who deserved to have arguably what we have. You know, they longed to see what we see, to know what we know. You know you think of the the likes of some of those prophets that we 're reading of as we 're going through the minor prophets of Amos, Obadiah, you know some of these individuals Hosea so faithful in their ministry, Habakkuk you know comes onto the scene, stirs up a nation, changes everything just obedient to God, and the likes of Jeremiah, the struggles that he went through it 's like they had that penthouse, they had that room, and we've been put in their room. We've been given that which they wanted to see. Just as Israel moved into the land and inherited that which they hadn't laboured for, well, so through the Old Testament, these people, in a sense, were preparing the way. These prophecies that were given, looking forward to the Messiah coming, and suddenly we've turned up late on the scene, as it were, and we've been given all these things. You know, we've been given the, the privilege of knowing God through Jesus. You know, we don't have to go and sacrifice an animal to get right with God. Jesus has done it all, as we saw this morning. We don't have to strive in our efforts or our labors, or we don't have to fight real physical giants. You know, all of these things we've been given, and we should never become complacent with what we have. You know, there was a high priest who once a year, as we said earlier, could go into the Holy of Holies. You and I can do that anytime we choose. Anywhere we choose. I mean, just imagine what it was like. Even Zacharias, who we're talking about, John the Baptist dad. You know, he got to his opportunity to go into the holy place. How must he have felt? That was something that probably he'd look forward to. As a young man, as a Levite growing up, thinking of the day that he'd be able to go into the holy place. You and I can do that any time we want. It's amazing what we've been given. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37 and so on. We get the account of the Good Samaritan, but prefacing that we have this little bit of scripture. picking up verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life interesting isn't it he said unto him what is written in the law how readest thou and he answered him said thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart with all thy soul with all thy strength with all thy mind and thy neighbour as thyself you can almost imagine or see there a kind of a a touch of pride that he knew that particular scripture it was the right scripture to quote at that particular moment (laughs) he said unto him Jesus said unto him thou hast answered right this do and thou shalt live but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Oh, who is my neighbour? You know, just as like, I've been doing everything I should have been doing, so I'm surely there, aren't I? And Jesus says, well, okay. We could course get the parable, the story here of the, the Good Samaritan. Jesus explains who his neighbour is, not the one that he wants to necessarily look after, but the outcast, the one that other people are not concerned about. And of course we see this incredible picture of grace, unmerited favor in the account of the Good Samaritan. You know, we can't do anything. The question was, what can I do? We can't do anything. It's all been done for us. And this story of the Good Samaritan really gives us that. That individual, this certain man who's beaten up and left for dead, well that's just like us. Sin had done that to us. It beat us up real good and has left us for dead. We can't do anything. We've been stripped of everything. And of course Jesus comes and pays the bill. He pays the whole account. As the, the Good Samaritan says, you know, he put it all on my account. And Jesus has put our restoration all on his own account. It's a great picture, in a sense, of what Christ has done for us. And Jesus gives us that as an example of how we should be to others. This grace that we should show. In chapter 10, the great uh, little lesson for us in the situation with Mary and Martha... It came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, does it not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, so you know, trying to get your attention. Joy says that sometimes. She goes like, Barry, Barry. And I'm like, okay, yes, now, I, now I'm listening. Now it's twice. I know that's important. Thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part, or she'll not be taken away from her. You know, we're often guilty of the same thing as this. You know, we're like Martha so often. We're very busy. We like to be busy. It's good to be busy doing things. But are we prepared to just sit at Jesus' feet? You know, not many of us are very good at just sitting at Jesus' feet. And sometimes we look around, you know, we're busy serving and we're doing things. And we get frustrated with this other Christian that's not doing very much. And that's not fair, is it? But you know, sometimes that other Christian that to our eyes may not seem to be doing very much. Might be sitting at Jesus' feet far more than you and I are. You know, it's not about the effort, it's not about the work. Of course, we should do all things well, all things as unto the Lord. As Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. That's all true. But never in place of just coming before the Lord and having a relationship. What we concluded with last week, you know, God doesn't want us and hasn't saved us just so that we can serve Him. You know, as it's said, in a marriage relationship or with children, you know, you don't have a wife or a husband just to serve you. You don't have children so that they'll serve you. It's for a relationship. It's for an intimate, loving relationship. And that's what God wants from us. It's not just about doing things. So be careful if we just get busy doing things for the king and we forget about actually spending time with him. Luke chapter 14. Verse 7 through 11, just an interesting few verses. And he put forward a parable to those which were bidden, when he marked how they chose out the chief room, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honourable man than thee be bidden of him. And he bade them come unto him uh, and, and say, uh, say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Of course, Jesus is using this example to say, you know, When you enter a situation, do you go and sit at the top seat? Do you go and sit in the place of honor and then find that you're humbled? You know, that's not the way it is in the kingdom. You know, who are we trying to exalt ourselves or Jesus? But when they are bidden, go and sit in the lowest room. You know, John the Baptist got it right. He said, He must increase and I must decrease. It's not about our reputation, it's not about our name, it's about Jesus. That when he is bade thee come, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher, then shall thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meet with thee. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. You know, sadly in many churches you see this kind of power struggle, people wanting position, wanting authority and so on. You know, even in a, a secular environment, you know, sometimes the world presents it that unless you push yourself forward, you're never gonna get that position. Well, let me just ask you this question. Who is it that bought and paid for you? In whom service are you now? You know, even your jobs, your day jobs, your daily routines. Yet God is the one who promotes. Promotion comes neither from the East or the West, we're told in Scripture. Let God do the promoting in our lives. Let us just sit humbly and let God do the exalting. You know, again, we're not trying to exalt or we shouldn't be trying to exalt or put our name on a pedestal. Luke 14 is a, Great uh, chapter in many respects. And one of these pieces that's just stuck with me for a long time. Just, just read this. A certain man made a great supper and bade many. Then he sent his servant at supper time and say to them that were bidden, "Come, for all things are now ready." And they which, and they with one consent began to make excuse. The first said to him, "I've bought a piece of ground and I must needs go to it. I pray thee, have me excused." Another said, "I've bought five yoke of oxen. I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused." Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Look, don't let the blessings that God gives you be the things that keep you from him. So many times in my Christian walk, I've seen people be blessed with all sorts of things. They might be blessed with a a job, with a house, with children, or with whatever else. And suddenly, oh, where were we on Sunday? Oh, I couldn't come to church, we we were decorating. I couldn't come to church because we were out with the kids. Or I couldn't come to church because... I was doing this, or doing that, or doing the other. You know, so often we allow the things that God gives us, the blessings he pours upon us, to be the very thing that keep us from a deeper, closer walk with him. This carries on, it says, So that servant came and showed his lord these things, and then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring, them, uh, bring in hither the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind.'" You know, this really speaking of you and I. The way that we've been brought in, grafted in. Those originally invited didn't come, and the servant said, "Lord, it is done, and thou uh, as as I was commanded." And yet there is room. And the Lord said unto his servant, "Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled." This verse, for many years, has really just just. Stuck with me and keeps reverberating. That's what we're told to do. Compel people to come in. This word, compel, is anagkadzo. It's meaning, it's to necessitate. Also from this idea in the Greek is the idea of conscription, actually. Now, some people take this too far and try to kind of press gang people into church. That's not what this is about. But we should. this is not speaking as much about our uh, actions as rather our attitude you know it should be the way that we are in trying to bring people to know the lord we should be trying to compel people it should be so important to us to bring people in to bring them to know the lord and as linda was sharing this morning as Gerald was sharing and you know as no doubt ray comfort was speaking much at the, the conference this week you know this whole idea of getting out there talking to people again not be out of a sense of duty please don't do it out of a sense of duty do it out of a love do it because you love the Lord, and because the Lord has done such a wonderful thing in your life. That just like those lepers that we read about back in the Book of Kings, who found this great feast, and said, "You know, we've got all of this. We do don't do a good thing. Let's go out. Let's go back and tell the king's household." Well, the king has got a lot of people in this area. It may be very tough to to get into conversation. It may be very hard at times, but you know we've got to go as a servant, as this servant and compel them to come in. John Wesley was asked the question once, why do you preach so often on that verse, you must be born again? I love his answer. It said, simply because you must be born again. It's so simple. But people must be born again. And God has given us the privilege, and it really is a privilege of serving, like this servant, and going and saying, look, there's this is an incredible wedding supper that's being laid on for you. Come and enjoy it. Come and take part in it. You're invited. Well, we have the account of the prodigal son. I'm not going to go through all of this, but just some highlights for you, some key lessons out of this one. The father didn't prevent the son at having at the world. This is interesting, because he could have said, no, you're not going. I'm not going to give you your share of the inheritance. No, the son wanted to go and play in the world. Very much like we read in First Corinthians five five, you know, giving one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Sometimes that's the only way people will come to their senses. You know, the world of course makes its promises, but it has no intention of keeping them, and we should be wise to that. But it takes just a moment to repent and return. This is the beauty of of God's grace. That that moment we repent, we have a saviour that is willing to listen and to open his arms. And of course, the yeah, other thing we see it's possible to lose your inheritance because this individual did he lost his inheritance but he never lost his sonship he didn't cease becoming a son of his father but he did lose the inheritance and there's a much bigger study we could do on this sometime but just think of the other brother for a second you know goes to his dad why have you thrown this party you know i've been with you all the time and you know he'd lost sight that all that was there was his you know, we should never lose sight of the blessings that come from obedience because they're overwhelming. You know, this older son would never have wanted to go through the, the trauma that this younger son did through his stupidity. And he had so many blessings surrounding him and he lost sight of those things. We can do the same if we're not careful. Well, there's a great parable given. I say parable, uh, many commentators feel this is actually not so much a parable but rather an event, because Jesus doesn't give names typically in parables. Um, and here we have this rich man and Lazarus, and it's a great lesson for us in the fact that there is this great divide once we pass from this life. And of course the, the rich man cries out in his torment, and he's wanting first of all Lazarus to get some water, he has no tongue, he's, there's no physical body anymore, and yet that thirst is still there. Well, the conclusion of of this is that he's told that even if one were to rise from the dead, people wouldn't believe. And of course we see that. Jesus did rise from the dead. And people still refuse and choose not to believe. Jumping forward to the triumphal entry. When he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying to the Jews, If thou had known, even thou, at least in this thy day. This was the specific day that the Messiah had been promised. But then we're told that the things that would belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. And Jesus, as a result of this, pronounces national blindness on the nation and warns them of what's going to happen in 70 AD. They didn't know this at the time, but it would soon come to pass. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. And thou shalt uh, lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. And that we know was fulfilled historically, because, the reason was, because you didn't know the time of your visitation. And of course we've looked already and talked about the time this prophecy given way back in the days of um, uh, Nehemiah this prophecy that was recorded in the book of Daniel that was fulfilled on the very day the Jews should have been aware they should have known their prophetic scriptures but they missed it. Well as a result of this we get to the triumphal entry this day as Jesus rides in on this donkey We get to the Tuesday of that week, and we get the Olivet Discourse. Now, it's interesting, and just to highlight this for you quickly, because in Matthew 24, Jesus announces the signs of the end of the age from a Jewish perspective. We saw that when we were going through Matthew 24. And Matthew's Gospel, of course, is a deliberate presentation to the Jews. We've seen that already. But Luke's presentation, and possibly again, because to some degree he was a Hellenistic Jew living in that kind of culture, It's from a Gentile and or church perspective. Now, verse 7 records the same question that disciples ask, but it's subtly different um, to that which is recorded in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? But in Luke, the question is phrased this way, And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things come to pass? They start asking, what will be the sign of these things that Jesus has been speaking about? He's talking about the the temple being torn down and so on. But in Matthew, it's the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. That's the focus of Matthew's presentation. Luke's presentation is different. It focuses on what sign will there be when these things come to pass. It's speaking of the destruction of the temple. Now it's very interesting because as you look at this, we get verse 9, it says, But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass. But the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs there shall be from heaven. Very much like Matthew's account, but then notes. Verse 12. But before all these things. Now if you read the account in Matthew, the account in Luke without taking note of this, you'll get confused about who's talking about what. Matthew really focuses on the end times, the whole thing. But Jesus gives a brief presentation of the things that we find recorded in Matthew, but then specifically addresses the question that we have recorded, but before all these things, and then he says, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you. Speaking of the Jews and obviously the church, because you grew out of Israel. Delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before the kings and rulers for my name's sake. So see, after detailing the destruction of the temple, Jesus then concludes this section by again jumping back to where Matthew carries on and talking about the times of the Gentiles, after the times of the Gentiles. So we need to understand in Luke we have this parenthesis in a sense. It's been inserted, which we don't have recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, which is specifically talking about the things that will come upon the believers and then eventually returns to the end. Uh, and we get, uh, for as a snare it shall come on them that dwell on the whole face of the earth. And then what a great promise this is. And again, remember the, if I may say Gentile or church, perspective of these things. Watch you therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. What a promise for us. That all the things that are going to come on this world, there's a promise there is a way of escape. Well, we haven't got time, unfortunately, to go through these things. I'm going to leave it in the notes so you can have a look. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we read that Jesus shed these great drops of blood. And Dr. Luke tells us through his diagnosis of this thing. It's a medical condition called hematidrosis due to extreme anguish and pressure and so on and so on. Let's just uh, move. We'll jump forward. I'll leave some of those things in the notes. I just want to conclude with this from Luke 24. So this is now after the resurrection uh, and so on. And these two individuals are making this journey. We just read. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. And they talked together of the things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden. They couldn't see that they should know not him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these things, that you have one to another, as you walk and are sad? So Jesus observes that they're sad because of the... And he goes, Guys, what are you talking about? What were what, what you saying? And one of them, whose name was uh, Cleopas, answered and said unto him, Art thou uh, only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which have come to pass there in these days? He's like, How can you ask me that question? Don't you know what's happened here? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a mighty prophet indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all of this, today is the third day since all these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And some of them which were here with us went to the sepulchre and found it even so as the woman had said, but him they saw not. Then he, this is Jesus, said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village, where they were, uh, went, and he uh, made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and and gave, gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? Wow. What Bible study that must have been. As Jesus started at Moses and the prophets, and went through it all, expanded it, and showing where he was on every page. The volume of the book speaks of him. Who would like to have been at that Bible study? That must have been incredible. But you know what? You and I have the same privilege as that. Because God has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to bring to our understanding the things that are written. We can do a Bible study with the Lord anytime we want. You know, it comes back to what I was saying about the privilege we have in the church, in these days in which we live, in this, this era, this dispensation. You know, it must have been amazing for those individuals as they suddenly realised that they have been listening to Jesus. Teach them. But right now, you and I can come before his word humbly and he will teach us. Every one of us. And I encourage you to spend more time in God's word. This week, try and spend more time in God's word than you did last week. However much time that was last week, this week try and spend a bit more. Just before the lord just allowing him to teach you you know the lord loves to teach us and as we do that i guarantee you that our hearts will burn just as theirs did next week we'll pick up and study john's gospel looking at the presentation of jesus as the son of god let's bow our hearts father we thank you for your word and father As we read your word, Lord, our hearts do burn within us. Because, Lord, we're challenged by the things that you tell us. Lord, we're challenged that maybe we do spend time where we're just so busy doing things and serving rather than forgetting to love you and to get on our knees before you, just to sit at your feet. Father, sometimes we do forget the blessings that surround us. Father, sometimes we are not mindful of the privilege we have. Lord, this room in which we now dwell within the church Lord having the revelation of your word just given to us in its entirety Lord being able to come at any time boldly before the throne of grace Father we thank you for these things and Jesus thank you that you were the perfect man that you showed us a way of living and that you've given us now your Holy Spirit to enable us to live the same way Father we thank you for these things Lord impress them upon our hearts that we may grow further in knowledge and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.